Arya or Aryan is an ethno-cultural self-designation by Indo-Iranians in ancient times. In ancient India, the term Arya was used by those Indo-Aryan speakers of the Vedic period, and it was in reference to a region we believe was called Aryavarth, or the abode of the Aryas, where the Indo-Aryan culture we think emerged. The Avesta is the primary collection of religious texts of the Zoroastrian belief system, composed in the Avestan language. The Avesta texts fall into several different categories, arranged either by dialect or by usage. Avestan, which is associated with northeastern Greater Iran and Old Persian that belongs to the southwest, together constitute what is called Old Iranian. Some scholars traditionally classify Iranian languages as just old, middle, and new, according to their age, essentially, and as eastern or western, according to some geography. And within this framework, Western is classified as eastern Old Iranian. But that east-west distinction is of limited meaning for a Western, as the linguistic developments that later distinguished Eastern from Western Iranian had not actually occurred. A Western does not display some typical Southwestern Iranian innovation already visible in Old Persia. And so in this sense, Eastern just means non-Western Iranian. Old Western is closely related to Old Persian and largely agrees somewhat with Vedic Sanskrit, interestingly enough. The Old ancestor dialect of Pashto was also close to the language of the Gathas. These Gathas, in case you are wondering, are 17 Western hymns traditionally believed to have been composed by the Iranian prophet Zarathustra, i.e. Zoroastra. They form the core of the Zoroastrian Yasana and they are arranged in five different modes. The surviving texts of the Avesta, as they exist to read today, derive from a single master copy produced during the Sasanian Empire 224 to 651 CE. That master copy, now lost, is known as the Sasanian Archetype, the oldest surviving manuscript of an Avestan language text that was dated to 1323 CE. Summaries of the various Avesta texts found in the 9th and 10th century texts of Zoroastrian traditions, suggests that a significant portion of the literature in the Avestan language has actually been lost. Only about one quarter of the Avestan sentences or verses referred to by the 9th or 10th century commentators can be found in surviving texts. This suggests that three quarters of Avestan material, including a great number of judicial, historical, and legendary texts have simply been lost. On the other hand, it appears that the most valuable portions of the canon, including all of the oldest texts, have actually survived. The likely reason for this is that the surviving materials represent those portions of the Avesta that were in regular use and therefore known by heart by the priests and not dependent for their preservation on the survival of particular manuscript. Indeed, in its present form, the Avesta is a compilation from various sources, 
and its different parts that date from different periods and vary widely in character. We only assume texts in the Avesta language are considered part of the Avesta. The content of the Avesta are divided topically into eight. The Asana, the Visparad, the Vinidat, the Yashat, the Siroza, the Nashis, the Gath, the Afghanzi. Aryavartha, the abode of the Aryas, is a term for the Indian subcontinent, typically the North, along with some other parts in ancient Hindu texts, such as the Dharmasastras and Sutras, referring to the area of the Indian subcontinent that was settled by Indo-Aryans, specifically those tribes, and to where Indo-Aryan beliefs and philosophy and rituals predominated. The limits of Aryavarta extended over time, as reflected in the various sources as the influence of Brahmanical ideology spread eastward post-Vedic era. The Buddhania Sutras are a group of Vedic Sanskrit texts which cover dharma, daily ritual, mathematics, etc. It is believed that this was compiled in the 6th to the 8th centuries BCE. They are also noted for containing several early mathematical results, including an approximation of the square root of 2 and the statement of what ultimately in the future became the Pythagorean theorem. To give you a geographical idea of this Aryavartha, if you imagine northern India and the Ganges and the Yamuna plains, that's essentially it. The term Arya itself may be of Proto-Indo-European origin. Proto-Indo-European is the theorized common ancestor of the Indo-European language family. It is proposed, or its proposed features, have been derived by linguistic reconstruction from documented Indo-European languages that currently exist, or used to be spoken. No direct record of Proto-Indo-European exists, so it's a lot of hearsay. Proto-Indo-European is essentially a hypothesized to have been spoken as a single language from 4,500 BC to about 2,500 BC, during what we assume to be the late Neolithic to early Bronze Age periods, though estimates vary by thousands of years. Again, lots of hearsay. According to the prevailing hypotheses, the original homeland, homeland for the Proto-Indo-Europeans may have been somewhere in the Caspian steppes of Eastern Europe or somewhere around the Caucasian areas, etc. The linguistic reconstruction of Proto-Indo-European has provided insight into the pastoral culture and religion of its speakers. Again, just put a huge asterisk by what I've just said because no one was there. As speakers of Proto-Indo-European became isolated from each other through the Indo-European migrations. The regional dialects of Proto-Indo-European, spoken by the various groups, diverged, and each dialect underwent shifts in their own pronunciation. The Indo-European sound, 
morphed and the vocabulary changed over many centuries, these dialects transformed into known ancient Indo-European languages. From there, further linguistic divergence led to the evolution of their current descendants, the modern Indo-European languages. Today, the descendant languages of Proto-Indo-European with native speakers are Spanish, English, Portuguese, Hindi, Urdu, Bengali, Russian, Punjabi, German, Persian, French, Marathi, Italian, and Gujarati, among many more, such as Bhojpuri. It's quite a lot, actually. The Indo-European migrations were the supposed migrations of the Proto-Indo-European language speakers, i.e. the people themselves. While there can be no direct evidence of prehistoric languages, both the existence of Proto-Indo-European and the dispersal of its daughter dialects through wide-ranging migrations and elite dominance dispersal are inferred, inferred through a synthesis of data from linguistics, archaeology, anthropology, and genetics. Again, no one was there. So, comparative linguistics describe the similarities between various languages and the linguistic laws at play in the changes in those languages. Archaeological data traces the spread of cultures presumed to be created by speakers of Proto-Indo-European in several stages, from the hypothesized locations of the Proto-Indo-European homeland, homeland in inverted commas, into their later locations of places in Western Europe, Central, South, and Eastern Asia, through migrations and by language shifts, through elite recruitment, etc., as described by anthropological research. Some more recent genetic research has increasingly contributed to understanding the revelations or relations even between various prehistoric cultures. Again, hearsay, huge caveats, hearsay, hearsay, hearsay. No one was there. Proto-Indo-Iranian is the reconstructed proto-language of the Indo-Iranian branch of the overall Indo-European language family. Its speakers are the hypothetical proto-Indo-Iranian peoples who are assumed to have lived in the late 3rd millennium BC, and it is assumed to have some connection with the Eurasian steppes. To change topics a little bit, we're now going to talk about something highly controversial known as the Aryan invasion theory. Excavations at Harappa, Mohandaro, and Lothal i.e. the Indus Valley Civilization sites. Back in the 1920s, these uh, excavations showed that northern India already had an advanced culture when Indo-Aryans migrated into the area. Their theory changed from a migration of advanced Aryans to a primitive Aboriginal population to a migration of nomadic peoples into an advanced urban civilization. Kind of like... Germans, all these German barbarians migrating to the Western Roman Empire resulting in its fall. Although that's just uh, an example for you to visualize. That is probably not what happened. The Indus Valley civilization, just to give you some context, was a Bronze Age civilization in the northwestern regions of South Asia that lasted from about 3,300 BCE to about 1,300 BCE. Yes, that long ago, and in its much most mature form was from about 2600 BCE to about 1900 BCE. Together with ancient Egypt and ancient Mesopotamia, 
the Indus Valley civilization was one of the three earliest civilizations of human history. Now, why that's important in this is because of this Aryan invasion concept that they moved in. All right. It is hotly debated and it is hotly debated even today. We're not going to get into the debate, but just keep in mind that this is a theory that these tribes of Aryans moved in to that region. The Indus Valley civilization's cities were noted for their urban planning. Big brick houses, elaborate drainage systems, water supply systems, clusters of large non-residential buildings, and new techniques in handicraft, including metals and tin. The large cities of Mohadaro and Harappa very likely grew to contain between 30 and 60,000 people, and the civilization itself, that whole region, probably had between 1 and 5 million people, which is huge. As I said, comparable to Mesopotamia and the Nile. Gradual drying of the region's soil during the 3rd millennium BCE may have been the initial spur for the urbanization associated with the civilization, but eventual weaker monsoons and reduced water supply probably caused the civilization's demise and caused its population to scatter eastward and then southward. This decline of the Indus Valley civilization at precisely the period in history in which the Indo-Aryan migrations possibly took place seemed to provide independent support for such an, and I put it in quotes, invasion. This argument was proposed by the mid-20th century British archaeologist Mortimer Wheeler, who interpreted the presence of many unburied corpses found in the top levels of Mohandaro as victims of the conquest of war, and who famously stated that the god Indra stands accused of the destruction of the civilization. This position was discarded after finding no evidence of warfare. The skeletons were found to be hasty interments, not massacred victims. Wheeler himself also nuanced his own interpretation in later publications, stating that this is a possibility, but it can't be proven, and it may not be correct. Wheeler himself further notes that the unburied corpses may indicate an event in the final phase of human occupation of Mohandaro, and that thereafter the place was uninhabited, but that the decay of Mohandaro had to be ascribed to structural causes, such as the salinization of the water or soil, meaning it became too salty to uh, grow crops. Although invasion was discredited, critics of the Indo-Aryan migration theory continued to present the theory as an Aryan invasion theory, presenting it as a racist and colonialist discourse. So even though it was discredited, it was kept alive by the people who wanted to discredit it, bizarrely enough. So in my humble view, number one, none of us were there, and no actual documents remain, but there were simply a lot less people around in those days, just physically less humans. Two, back in those days, life was hard and tribes did attack settlements. It is not out of the question that something happened that could have been an invasion, a violent one, even to end a civilization. And three, but so too it is possible that many tribes visited over the hundreds of years that the Indus Valley civilization is thought to have existed. 
So in other words, one, there are just not enough people around and anything could have happened. Two, back in those days, life was tough and there were tribes everywhere and there could have been an invasion indeed, not to all of it, but certainly some of the Indus Valley civilization. And number three, it's also possible that people were just passing by. So in my view, there was, to be honest, no invasion, uh, such as the uh, German barbarian invasions of Rome. But these guys were one of many passing peoples through the region. Speaking of tribes, one such Indo-Aryan tribe were, are, in fact are, the Romani. Yes, they are still a tribe or tribes, not to be confused with Romanians, not to be confused with Romans, not to be confused with Eastern or Western Romans. These people are different. These people are the Romani and their Indo-Aryan tribe. The Romani, known also as Roma, are actually an Indo-Aryan ethnic group, traditionally nomadic, living mostly these days in Europe, and there have been some people who moved to the Americas, namely Brazil and the U.S. The Romani, as a people, originate from northern India, around Rajasthan, Haryana, and Punjab. Rom means husband in the Romani language. It has the variants Dom and Lom, which may be related to the Sanskrit words Dampati, i.e. lord of the house or husband, and Dama, to subdue. The Romani people are widely known in English by their more common name, Gypsies, which, by the way, is considered by many Romani people to be insulting due to its connotations of illegality and irregularity, as well as its historical use as a racial slur. Genetic findings in 2012 suggest the Romani originated in northwestern India and migrated as a group. According to the study, the ancestors of present scheduled castes and scheduled tribe populations of northern India are traditionally referred collectively as the Doma, are the likely ancestral populations of modern European Roma. Amazing, isn't it? Most Romani people are actually Christian. Others are Muslim. And some retain their ancient faith, Hinduism, from originally India, the homeland, while others have their own religion and political organization. Theravada Buddhism, influenced by Dalit Buddhist movements, have become popular in recent times among Hungarian Roma. In December 2012, additional findings appear to confirm that the Roma came from a single group that left northwestern India about 1,500 or so years ago. They could have, according to this theory, reached the Balkans region of Europe about 900-odd years ago and then spread throughout Europe. The Romani language is divided into several dialects, which together are estimated to have more than 2 million speakers. Many Romani people are native speakers of the dominant language in their country of residence or of mixed languages combining the dominant language with a dialect of Romani. Those varieties are sometimes known as para-Romani. According to a legend reported in the Persian epic poem, the Shah Namesh from Iran, and repeated by several modern authors, the Sasanian king Brahmam V Gore 
leaned towards the end of his reign, about 421 to 439, that the poor could not afford to enjoy music, and he asked the king of India to send him 10,000 luris, lute-playing experts. When the luris had arrived, Brahm gave each one an ox, a donkey, and a donkey load of wheat so that they could live on agriculture and play music for free for the poor. However, the luris ate the oxen and the wheat and came back a year later with their cheeks hollowed with hunger. The king, angered with their having wasted what he had given them, ordered them to pack up their bags and go wandering around the world on their donkeys. This is obviously just legend, but it is nevertheless very, very interesting. In 1385, the year marks the first transaction for a Romani slave in Germany. They were issued safe conduct by the Holy Roman Emperor Sismund in 1417. Romanis were ordered expelled from the region of Germany in 1416. Uh, in those days, there wasn't a Germany, so I'm just saying Germany in order to give you a geographical idea. And once they were expelled from there, they were also expelled from places like Milan, France, Catalonia, Sweden, England, Denmark, and indeed from 510 onwards, any Romani found in Switzerland were to be executed, while in England, beginning 1554, and Denmark, beginning 1589, any Romani which did not leave within a month were to be executed. Portugal began deportations of Romani to its colonies in 1538, possibly explains why there are so many Romani in Brazil. A 1596 English statute gave Romanis special privileges that other wanderers lacked. France ultimately passed a similar law in 1683. Catherine the Great of Russia declared the Romanis crown slaves, a status superior to serfs, which is good, but also kept them out of certain parts of the capital. During the latter part of the 17th century, around the Franco-Dutch War, both France and Holland needed thousands of men to fight. Some recruitment took the form of rounding up vagrants and the poor to work the galleys and provide the army's labor force. With this background, Romanis were targets of both the French and the Dutch. After the wars and into the first decade of the 18th century, Romanis were slaughtered with impunity throughout Holland. Romanis, called heathen by the Dutch, wandered throughout the rural areas of Europe and became the societal pariahs of that age. Indeed, in Holland, they actually had something called the heathen hunt in order to eradicate them. In Europe, generally, they were subjected to ethnic cleansing, abduction of their children, and forced labor. In England, Romani were sometimes expelled from small communities or hanged. In France, they were branded, and their heads were shaved. In Moravia and Bohemia, the women were marked by their ears being severed. As a result, large groups of Romani moved to the east towards Poland, which was more tolerant, and Russia, where the Romani were treated more fairly as long as they paid the annual taxes. In Europe, Romani people have been associated with poverty and are accused of high rates of crime and behaviors that are perceived by the rest of the population as being antisocial or inappropriate. The Romanis of Kosovo have been severely persecuted by ethnic Albanians since the end of the Kosovo War, and the region's Romani community is, for the most part, annihilated. Czechoslovakia carried out a policy of sterilization of Romani women starting in 1973. During World War II, 
the Nazis embarked on a systematic genocide of the Romani, a process known in Romani as the Porajmos. The Romani were marked for extermination and sentenced to forced labor and imprisonment in concentration camps. They were often killed on sight. The Nazi position remains most perplexing because they, the Nazis, considered themselves part of the Aryan race. And indeed, the Romani are Aryans. Nazi ideas and concepts derive from the notion that the original speakers of the Indo-European languages and their descendants up to the present day, i.e. 1930s, constitute a distinctive race or sub-race of the Caucasian race. Max Muller is often identified as the first writer to mention an Aryan race in the English language. In his lectures on the science of language in 1861, Muller referred to Aryans as a race of people. At the time, the term race had the meaning of a group of tribes or peoples, an ethnic group of some kind. He occasionally used the term Aryan race afterwards, but wrote in 1888 that an ethnologist who speaks of Aryan race, Aryan blood, Aryan eyes and hair is a great sinner, and otherwise they don't know what they're talking about. While the Aryan race theory remained popular, particularly in Germany, some authors opposed its wider usage. The Nazi party in Germany claimed to observe a strict scientific hierarchy of the human race. Adolf Hitler's views towards race and people can be found throughout his book Mein Kampf, but specifically in chapter 11 called Nation and Race. Hitler made references to an Aryan race, founding a superior type of humanity. The purest stock of Aryans, according to Nazi ideology, was the Nordic peoples of Germany, England, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia. These Nazi views of the superiority of the Aryan race and the inferiority of other races, especially the Slavic peoples, black peoples, gypsies, and at the bottom of the scale, Jews, became the basis for German national social policies once Hitler became chancellor, then Führer of the country. They were also a major factor in Hitler's invasions of Poland and the USSR, and they resulted directly in the Holocaust of the Jews and the Romani. You would have noted, as I conclude this episode, that the Nazi position is at best poor historical association, at worst an outright lie. The Nazis were not Aryans. And everything from my research demonstrates that the Aryans are a completely different stock of people to the Nazis, who simply took the name and the swastika and used it for their own purposes. Indeed, it's so different that the word Iran for the name of the country is Persian for Aryan. Aryan remains a common name in India for boys and Arya for girls. The swastika, as I said, is used in Indic religious worships. The Aryans have left their mark and do so daily on this planet. To somehow directly answer the question, who are the Aryans, then you really have to assume that it is the Romani, people from Iran and northern India, possibly people from Pakistan and from Afghanistan. But that, again, is just a mishmash of stuff because ultimately the Aryans were a tribe that moved up and down, left and right, north and south, east and west, 
and that too was thousands of years ago. Just that many of their ideas, such as the Aryavast and others, still exist today, and many people still self-identify themselves as Aryans. So, in conclusion, the Aryans have left us a lot, but not that much in terms of DNA. Thank you again. You have been listening to the Alternative History Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.